Thanks for visiting studiolighting.net. You're listening to Light Source. And welcome to episode 19 of Light Source, the official podcast of studiolighting.net, the website that introduces photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer and image inspector with iStockphoto.com. On today's episode, episode 19, the last one of the teens, we're going to have our second part interview with Mark Robert Halper. Now, in our last episode, we talked with him about kind of like the the whys of photography and some theory behind it and why he does certain things. Now, this episode is going to be more about the technical. We gave him some actual scenarios, and he kind of told us how he would treat them, and I think it's a really good interview from a technical standpoint, and the, the two of these are are great references to keep a hold of, I think. Absolutely. And I think the coolest thing about Mark is that he totally hates light modifiers. <laughs> so <laughs> you get to hear, uh, I think, a little bit of a different perspective from someone who just likes to b- bounce their lights off of whatever happens to be in the room. So, yeah, And he, he gets some amazing results out of it, too. So Yeah, he does. So not only is he uh, operating on a better budget, but he's also getting some something that not everybody is getting. That's right. It's kind of inspirational for those of us that don't have a whole lot of equipment, right? Yeah, definitely. So pretty cool. Uh, what's uh, what's going on in the world of photography, though? Well, it, it seems to me like a lot of the big guys are starting to uh, try to corner the market on uh, photography software. Uh, a couple big acquisitions this week. Uh, Pixman Tech, uh, makers of Raw Essentials, um, they have the the free and then the the Essentials is the free raw processing application, and their Raw Essentials Premium is their pay for raw processing application. And it was recently purchased by Adobe, and I hear the plans are that it's going to be going into Lightroom. That's a very interesting because I've, I've tried that program. It, it's for PC only. The the Raw Essentials, right? Correct. Now. Are they going to keep that free? Because <laughs> that's the only free raw converter right now. Well, um, well, aside from the ones that come with your cameras. Right. Um, but yeah, it's it sounds like they're going to try and keep raw essentials free. Uh, they're going to discontinue the raw shooter premium. And one report I saw said that they were going to discontinue the free one once the Lightroom beta was released and another report that I read didn't say anything about it. So I think it's up in the air what's going to happen with it. That's pretty wild. And Adobe's just taken over. First Macromedia and now this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're definitely getting to be a big uh, a big conglomerate. And it seems like um, the focus to me seems like it's on a lot of these uh, digital asset management applications that, that I've been talking about on a lot of the, the recent shows. Right. As people are shooting more and more images, it's it just gets to a point of finding them, organizing them, and being able to retrieve them. It really is all about the workflow, it sounds like. It definitely, and a lot of these applications are looking at trying to make it easier for that workflow for, for everyone, even from like the consumer to the professional. That's pretty cool. Now, you mentioned, too, is there some some other acquisitions going on? Well, kind of along the same lines with the the DAM software is Microsoft. They bought iView Media. iView. Now you've used Which, that. It's it's the, currently the one that I am using. That's what I thought. Um, I'm actually bouncing back and forth between that and ACDC Pro. I'm a little nervous now that Microsoft is buying <laughs> right. it. 
Um, I hope they don't screw it up because I really, I really like the application and a lot of the stuff that it does. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but it's almost a little Mac-like in its feel. Oh, okay. Which is, it seems to me it's a little odd that Microsoft is going to be buying it up. I would have, I would have expected Apple or someone like that to acquire it, but right. if anyone. But we'll see what happens. Uh, there, Microsoft's having a pro summit, I believe, this month um, out at Redmond with a number of large photographers, and I know that they're trying to get input with Vista and trying to get more feedback from photographers and trying to make Vista better. I don't know. We'll have to see what happens. It, it's certainly an interesting time. Now, you had found one that's also another one that was recently updated. Oh, yeah. Well, um, Bibble version 4.8 came out this week, too, but uh, I'm not sure of the details. I think that was just a minor upgrade. Well, that's something to check out as well. Stuff. Yeah. So it's a pretty active week in the, in the raw campground. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Lots of uh, software stuff going on. Uh, the photo contest is still going on. Uh, yeah, our StudioLighting.net official StudioLighting.net portrait photo contest is in full swing. Hopefully so, our first of many. That's right. And if you haven't, you haven't submitted your photo, I totally encourage you guys to do that. We only have a couple more weeks in the contest. It now, ends. I noticed you said photo singular. Yes, photo. You want to submit one where we have a want to put a little reminder out there that we would like to sum- only receive one photo per contest entry. So, uh a couple folks out there have submitted more than one and um we we would hate to have to disqualify the entries because of the rules. So, if you have one or more than one in there, try to get it down to one that you really like that you think represents your lighting style or whatever and uh get those entries in. The contest ends midnight July 15th and we'll be judging those well we're going to have Christopher Gray, who was a guest on the show, and some of the other staff from ShootSmarter.com doing the judging. And that'll be announced on our first episode in our August podcast. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that'll be really neat. So head on over to the Flickr group if you want to see some of the people that have already joined. Also, on StudioLighting.net, you can see the entries on the contest page. We have a little slideshow at the bottom that you can check out. Yeah, that's actually pretty fun. I like watching the slideshow. It's It's a little... I think it's more interesting than, than looking at them in the pool. I, I like the, the interactivity and the, the flowing of it. It kind of gives you a good idea of the images that have already been submitted. And there are some very good images. I'm, yeah, some amazing really, work. I'm just having a good, great time watching this contest. So thanks to everybody that's participated so far. Yeah, definitely. I'm marking some favorites out of this. Awesome. But while we're talking about Flickr, uh, I was doing a little bit of flickering this evening, and I, I stumbled across something really funny, I thought. Um, did you know there's a Flickr gang sign? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, you, it's amazing the stuff that you find on Flickr. And, um, <laughs> it, we'll try and put a, a link to the, the group. It's, I, I've seen a couple in the group that are pretty funny. It looks like people actually have, um, when they're doing a shoot with a model, you know, they have like these really, you know, elegant uh, fashion models and they're sitting there with the, the Flickr gang sign, which is, Kind of like if you take your hand upside down, like you're giving a thumbs down symbol, but you take like your your middle and and first finger and point them out, so that way you kind of like have an upside down F going. Like an F, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Although it could get you in trouble in certain cities, so use it with caution, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever you're on a shoot, get a get a Flickr gang sign and submit it to the Flickr gang sign group, and then stick another one in our group as well, because yeah, I think it'd be funny. funny to see how many people do it. Maybe you could do that when you're holding your gray card so you can, for your white balance. <laughs> <laughs> it's gray balance and skin tone all That's in right. one. 
Well, we had an email question that we wanted to address on the show. Yeah, um, we get a whole lot of email, and uh, it's really difficult to answer them all on the show. But since you just went through this, I thought you might want to chat about this. We got an email from Dwayne Hills, who uh, incidentally said he really enjoyed the show with Mark Robert Halper. Um, but Dwayne asked, how important is it that we actually purchase an expensive tripod? Mm, good question. Um, I've heard a lot of different feedback on it. And um, and as you know, I mean, well, I think we talked about it on a previous show that I was doing a little bit of uh, research on the topic as well. I I had went to B&H Photo while I was in New York with the specific purpose of walking up and down the, the tripod aisle and actually taking a look at them, holding them, and seeing what I thought of them. Because you know, I had a friend who was saying that they really, really loved their their um, their carbon fiber tripod that they had, and they take it everywhere. Right. But I was a bit hesitant about spending you know, $350 on a <laughs> right. set of legs and then another $200 on a nice head. A couple different places that I had read and, and heard about different things, and there was one that I really liked that stood out at, at me with good advice. And they said to buy a decent pair of legs, nothing really expensive. I, I think the legs that I bought were like $150, $170. And they were uh, Manfrotto's, and the number escapes me, but it was basically their standard set of legs. And they're not real heavy. They're not real light either, but they're not bad. And I got a decent head for it. Okay. And a lot of different things that I hear say that you know, the most important part is getting a really good solid head. And that's the part where your tripod mounts. Um, I prefer the ball mount. I did have one that was a grip, and it's basically a ball mount that has like a quick release on it. Mm -hmm. And the one that I had before, I didn't like. Um, you pull the grip, and you get it in position, and you let go of it, and it would kind of creep on you a little oh, bit. Yeah. It, would, it wouldn't hold its position really well. No matter how I tightened it, it just if I tightened it down really good so it didn't move too much, then when I pulled the grip in, it didn't want to release. Right. Now, granted, it wasn't a name brand. It was an eBay brand, um, which may have something to do with it because <laughs> the legs didn't last very long either. But I prefer the ball head. Um, I like the ball head. It's smaller. It's lower profile. It's lighter. And to release it, you just have a knob that you just turn. So, I mean, it's it's a little bit longer to release it, to move it, but it's it's not that bad. And you can crank it down pretty hard, and it doesn't move. Right, um, it stays locked, and it's not that much of an inconvenience to turn a turn a uh, knob. If I think I would prefer to have my camera really still, than to have the convenience of a grip handle. But they're both options, and I think you said a couple of really important things when it comes to at least studio work, which is pretty much what we we probably are talking about here with uh, with Dwayne's question. You really you're really going to want to have your camera on the tripod whenever you can, especially if you're shooting with continuous lights, because you're going to be at some of those lower shutter speeds. You're going to be in a situation where you need to have the camera still to avoid shake and get the sharpest images that you can. So um, I certainly think it's important. And as soon as you move out of the studio, it becomes even more important. So it's a great question. Yeah, exactly. And to address the expensive one, the reason why I did end up going with the cheaper legs, if you're out in the woods, say you're doing some landscape work or whatever, and you're by a stream or someplace that's yucky or muddy or whatever, if you spend $600 on a set of legs, <laughs> you're going to think twice about sticking it you know, in sure. a yucky location. It's yeah. like, that's why you bought the thing is to hold your camera. You want to be able to put it where you want it. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
Yeah, so buy a cheap set of legs, and then it's like, all right, well, if they get muddy or they get damaged or whatever, well, you didn't waste six hundred dollars. That's right. And and weight, you you mentioned that being a factor. Now, if you're in a studio, you're not going to carry your tripod around too much, but certainly if you're outdoors and you're taking it on location, that that might become a factor. Now, the graphite legs are really lightweight, but it's probably cheaper to hire an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> As we heard in the last. Uh, Two episodes ago. Yeah, you can ask ask Eric about that. Yeah, <laughs> we should have asked him which type of tripod he preferred. I have a, I have a suspicion it would be the lighter one. <laughs> we should probably send him an email. Yeah. Which do you prefer? <laughs> but that was a great question, and we encourage you guys to keep sending us questions. And the ones that we can't answer on the air, we try to answer on the website. So it's worth taking a visit to studiolighting.net and clicking on the lighting question section because that's where we post. Um, all of our responses to the questions that we get through email. Um, we're supposed to be talking about studio lighting, so do you guys want to <laughs> show me any problems and we can play with how to solve it? I can. Is, is oh, that what I this shows about? I want to talk about studio lighting because I took a workshop with Frank Ockenfels III, who is a phenomenal celebrity photographer. And he introduced me to the silver reflector board. Okay. And you take these things. Well, I guess you could bounce it from outside into the studio. You don't have to plug anything in. But they are wonderful with natural light. Very often to grab light and bounce them back. And soft light. You want to grab the soft light of a window with a board that's maybe a foot and a half by two feet. You can vary size and shape, and you can put that by turning it at the right angle, you can take that window and place it right next to your subject or anywhere you want by reflecting into it. It's not a fill most of the time. As much as it's a key light or something to kind of bounce some light from behind, and these boards, and it's kind of foam core with a silver uh, mylar on it. You can get them gold on the other side like 80 bucks for a 4x8 sheet, but it's worth it. You can cut them up and play with them. Um, you can bounce light across a room with intensity that you would not believe. Wow. So that was a cool thing. It's not particularly expensive. And I was just impressed to find something so simple. Now, I like this thing so much that today I was doing a shoot for Cedar sinai and it was a tight shot, and I brought it out. And what I did is I turned this thing at about a 45-degree angle and used the 4 by 8 sheet, or I cut it down so it's in my car, but close to that size, as a background because it reflects what it sees, but it softens it. Oh, okay. And it neutralizes it, so it takes, it makes the background look almost more like a dream. Oh, wow. It's, it's, and it's far less distracting far less contrast, far less focus. It just simplifies it. Um, it's shooting into a foggy mirror. Oh, wow. And it's great. And I did it today, and I loved it. So there's a good tip. Stuff you can do with a silver, you know, silver mylar on foam core. It's called silver foam core, I guess. Oh, that would be great. I will have to look for that. You can get it from Calumet, I know that. I've got no idea how to ship it to strange places in the country. <laughs> get in the major cities. 
Well, I keep talking about making a pilgrimage down to Philadelphia to to Calumet. So maybe a we'll pilgrimage? have oh, Be careful going to Calumet. Calumet is notorious for not having a lot in stock. Ah. They'll be able to get it for you in a week or ship it to you. But sometimes the store itself doesn't have what you need. Um, you can do it just as well with the catalog. Okay. Or if you know you're going to buy stuff, you know, call in advance, make sure they get it shipped to the store before you make the drive. Makes sense. Now, let's go back to this this, uh, this Mylar-covered foam core for a second. You you used it as a background, but how did you, what did you use for your main light? Was it ambient oh, conditions? Oh, I bounced or? some light into the wall. Okay. I used the strobe. I bounced it into the wall. I wanted a big, broad, soft source, and as it worked out, it wasn't quite even enough, so I set up some white panels to make their, to create a stronger highlight in one area um, so that there was a kind of brighter spot in the center, and then the rest of the room lit it, too, and it had a nice fall-off. Okay, great. Now, now, since we last talked, I've been bouncing my strobe off of all sorts of things, <laughs> and I have a couple of questions for you. When you um, when you talk about bouncing your strobe off of a wall or bookshelf or whatever is is you know for a different shape light, do you is it just a bare reflector that you, you know like an eight inch bowl reflector that's or, or you yeah, saw yeah pretty much okay yeah it doesn't matter very much because whether it's soft light or hard light hitting that since it's not actually lit and you're not seeing it. Mm-hmm. The light bouncing off of it is not particularly different whether it's coming from an umbrella or a hard head okay, or so anything else because it's still, it is the light source rather than your light being the light source. Does it matter how close you put the head to the to the object when you do that? Is, that? is that one of the controls that you use? Sure. The closer you've got the head, the smaller an area lit, the effect effectively the smaller your source. Great. Just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, because I've been trying that a lot since we last spoke. It's really, it's really neat to do that. Definitely recommend. If you can that. turn off, if you can turn off the light in the room completely, the modeling light will at least get you close to seeing what it does as you move it. The other thing that's interesting about that is you can leave the light in one place, but just turning the head ten degrees can completely change your light source because it moves it over in a big way. Your light doesn't need to move. What hmm. your light is hitting changes, therefore your light source changes. So you can make very small changes. Sorry, sorry, you can make very large changes by just moving your light very small amounts and not moving your stand at all. And you just have to keep thinking about the geometry, I mean, where the light's going to, how it's going to hit that. Object I'm assuming and you're working go. with a modeling light so you can kind of see where it's hitting. That's cool. Uh, the other question I had was, how do you deal with color shift then? Uh, I use a gray card. I stick it in a shot. I use I use different software than most people are probably using because I've got the Emicon back. Right. But I know in Photoshop, too, you can take a dropper, sample a gray card, and it will neutralize that color. And then you can use the color temperature slider to warm it or cool it to uh, taste. So I will always do a gray card. I do that with everything I do now. Okay. I always begin by neutralizing the light 
and then adjust it as I want to. So I know I'm starting at the right color. Far more accurate than film ever, ever was. <laughs> so now do you do much um, gelling of your light, or do you, you just deal with, the, with getting the only, color correct? If there's only one source, there would never be a point in gelling it because I'm always neutralizing it to gray. So there's never a point in putting a filter on my camera. There's no, um, you know, in terms of a colored filter. All right. And there's never a point in putting a filter on a light unless there are multiple light sources, in which case, if you want one light source to be bluer than the other, you can gel that one light source because it's, different within the shot, but otherwise, if you want it to be blue, you do it in color temperature. There's no reason to put gels in front of things. All you're doing is cutting down your light and complicating your life. Makes sense. Uh, I'm all about simplifying things. <laughs> yeah, I have a I have a little scenario for you, and I'm curious to see how you would handle something like this. Now, this not for a project that I'm working on, so that way, you know, it's not like I'm trying to, to get you to do the project <laughs> for me. No, this is fun. Go ahead. Um, say you have a location shoot that you have to do. Say it's something like a busy restaurant um, during a dinner hour. It's going to be, you know, you need to be fairly non-obtrusive. Um, what am I shooting, a portrait of a person? Um, yeah, the restaurant owner, let's say. Okay, I've done this um, a number of times for Chain Leader Magazine, where I'm shooting the restaurant owner or the chef or something like that, and I've got a lot going on in the background. Usually, I will use the existing light in the restaurant and start there, and everything will work around it. Most of the time, it is too complex and too bulky to come in with strobe equipment. Also, the strobe equipment, even turned way down, it's difficult to balance out, and it's too bright, and it's a totally different color. So I will use a hot light. I have... I usually use dado lights. You guys don't need to do that. Um, dado lights are these 100-watt little very expensive lights. They're about 600 bucks that are focused lights, and I will just put a hot light right on them. I'll often put some diffusion in between, sometimes very close to them by using something like a flex fill, sometimes just a little bit that's right on the light to soften it up there to take some of the edge off. Depends on who, on who I'm shooting and how hard of a light I can use. And I can usually make that. That will usually be somewhat close in color to what's going on in the restaurant and somewhat close in feel so it makes sense and it works. Okay. Um, that tends to be my technique for something like that. And I'll probably be wide open. So the, the restaurant goes out of focus because the restaurant's going to be distracting anyway. The trick to shooting a restaurant is finding a place that's simple enough without a million things happening and finding um, a place where you can compose it and put it together so it just it really works. Now, sometimes you have to block some of the light that's falling on, on the person because sometimes there could be some other light you don't like which might mean you block it, which might mean you point it somewhere else, which might mean you unscrew the bulb. There are a lot okay. of possibilities, but generally there's not too much that you're not completely overpowering with your own light. Make sure there's some shadow there, too, so where his face or her face is brighter, there's also some dark area 
which creates a nice balance against the background so they don't feel too bright. And then make sure there's some nice bright spots in the background that are still a little bit brighter than your person so it doesn't look lit. Things look very lit and very artificial when your foreground is bright and your background is dark because you feel the photographer's hand. You have to find the intensity of the balance, which is why Polaroid used to be necessary and digital sensors and viewers are so very nice. That's, that's really insightful. I hadn't thought of that. But that expl- I mean, going through my head are all these images that I can picture where it didn't look natural, and I kind of understand why. If you dump all the light on, on, on the person, you know, you don't see that in normal life. <laughs> um, my, my best photo tip is that your background is at least as important as your foreground. What is behind the subject is as much a part of the photo as the subject itself and deserves as much attention, very often taking up more space and very often being sometimes even more important. It's really about the background. I always start by finding great backgrounds and then build my foreground because backgrounds are hard to move around. Subjects are pretty easy. Stand here. <laughs> right. And you just set up your light there. But I begin by composing my backgrounds. And then I let them be as unobtrusive as I can and as much a part of the photo within its intent, within the way that I see the situation as I can. Great. Got any more problems? Well, I do have something that we, we get a lot of emails about that I wonder what your take would be on. on. Uh, a lot of folks who are just getting into into lighting or they've got a great digital camera and now they're trying to, to mess around in a room in their home or a lot of these are small spaces. Uh, how do you deal with artificial light in a small space, especially if you're trying to learn? When I started out, I had one of those tiny, tiny dining rooms off a small living room in a one-bedroom apartment, and I set up lighting that I could not possibly imagine doing now because I would insist there was no room in an area that was eight feet high, maybe ten feet deep, and perhaps eight feet wide. Okay. And I and I I backed off from it, but I lit stuff in there. Um, if one, if you're in a smaller area, think about shooting smaller things. You know, you're not going to be able to build a major set, but you can probably still do a great headshot. It's often good if it's white or at least a neutral color, so you can bounce into it. Um, the danger if it's some other color that you always need to be aware of is that your fill will also be of that color. Even if you correct for the very warm wall, you can do that, but your fill is even warmer. Hmm. Tungsten can work well. It's a small area. You can shoot through something. I would stay start simple and try and work with one light. Um, stay away from complicated, big stuff. Makes sense. That, you know, dealing with, you know, flux fills are great because they're relatively small. You get a translucent one, you can bounce into it, or you can shoot through it. Yeah, so in terms of strobes, like a lot of people go out and buy like 800 watt second heads and they got two of them and they're in and they're in that small room that you defined. I mean, that's going to be really a challenge, I think. So a, little, a little too much power. <laughs> right. Uh, well, first, uh, first thing you do, 
um, make sure you turn your ASA on your camera to its least sensitive setting or its lowest number, which for most people is going to be 100. That's the first thing right there. Then pick the aperture that you want to be at. You set your lights to where you want to shoot it mm -hmm. when you possibly can. You don't set your camera to an aperture because that's what your light meter said. So do that. Now, there are things you can do. If you are bouncing your lights, you might take black gaff tape and put it over, you know, three-quarters of the front of your reflector if your strobe head isn't too close. I've done that. Okay. You can get, for five or ten bucks a sheet, neutral density gel that will go over the front of the light, not affect the color balance in any significant way, and cut the light by one stop, two stops, three stops. I think it's highest four stops. Uh, you can, if, if, if it's not too dark, you can take your polarizer and put it on your lens. That'll cut two stops or a stop in two-thirds. Oh, that's a good idea. You, you always, if you've got a polarizer, you've always got something that will cut almost two stops of light off of your image in your camera bag and not affect the color and most of the time not really hurt your shot at all. If you turn it a bright way, maybe it will help your shot some. Maybe it won't make any difference. Um, but there are a lot of things you can do to cut down that light. Also, the more you bounce it every time you do that or shoot it through something, you do cut down on the intensity. You know, most of the time, a bounce, if you, as soon as you bounce it into white, that white is still going to eat up, oh, 50 to 75% of the light that hits it. It'll cut it by one and a half, two stops, something like that. There's some great suggestions. Yeah, I should have well, tried some of that. You bounce into gray. That'll cut more. <laughs> well, thinking if, you know, if you've got some thunder gray seamless or something, just put it on some foam core and bounce into the gray. That'll cut it way down. There you go. Just thought about that now. That's a great great idea as well. And then, you know, a gray sheet. If you don't have some thunder gray seamless, if you're going to do a color balance anyway, these little QP cards with the neutral gray, which is a digital neutral gray, it's a color neutral gray, which is completely different than a Kodak gray card. The Kodak gray cards or the 18% gray cards are designed for light meters to see a neutral amount of light. A digital gray card is designed for a neutral coloring so that it is equal amounts of red, green, and blue within the card, and it will properly color balance. And it's really important to use the right gray card for that purpose because the Kodak gray cards are not going to be neutral. But... Maybe they'll look better. They'll at least get you in the ballpark if that's all you've got. Right. It'll be far better than not using one. I was going to say that I should have used your uh, white balance technique the other evening. I did a, an outdoor shoot at night, and um, I recently picked up um, a Vagabond battery kit for my uh, Alien Bees that I've been shooting with. How do you like that? It's nice. It's really cool. It, it, um, I was running into a big problem that I was trying to capture. Um, I was in a tunnel area, and so I had I wanted to capture the ambient lighting of the tunnel, but yet not have to shoot it, um, you know, an ISO 800 or 1600 to to try and light up the people as well. So mm -hmm. the neutral density would have helped out a lot, or I should have turned around and um, probably tried bouncing the light into the wall. 
that would have been great. It also might have given you a nice quality. When you're at night, though, if you want something to look unlit, make sure there are brighter things behind them, especially then. And then they will look a lot less lit. Hmm. So there should be more brightness behind them than they are in some spots. I'm going to have to work with that a little bit because this, this location is a very... It's a very dark, very moody location. And actually, there's a couple other spots in the city that um, I need to drag Bill out to and <laughs> have him be my muscle for me to, to watch out, watch my back while we're out. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> there's some really I, I cool, creepy corners. Stuff alone. Yeah, it might be a bad idea. if you. It's not like I'm a street fighter or anything, so you might pick someone else to go along. <laughs> you might pick a few more people. Yeah, maybe. The... <laughs> yeah. Well, this area was kind of scary enough. It was right near the bus station. So we had a couple people that looked a little suspicious as we walked by, or as they walked by, and uh, you just kind of stopped shooting and pay attention for a little while. And you don't... What city are you in? Uh, just Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It's okay. You know, it's fairly I'm safe. I've been to Harrisburg. So when you work more with uh, with some of your outlet outdoor portrait work, do you take any portable gear with you? I do very little outdoor portrait work. That's the truth. I work overwhelmingly indoors because I like the control. And I've never really invested in anything that's battery-powered. I did recently go to Costco, and I have not used it yet. For 30 bucks, they had this huge overpowered flashlight. <laughs> cool. And I bought the huge overpowered flashlight, and tested it out and it definitely needs some diffusion on the front otherwise it has that really ugly flashlight pattern right <laughs> because they didn't make it as a photo accessory but it seems like that might be helpful on location in a bind that's a good um, idea and it's 35 bucks at yeah. Costco. so i've heard of a lot of people using those for uh doing some light painting with them oh that makes sense but you could also use it like you use your totalite, right? With a, maybe some diffusion on it, I mean, in a pinch. Sure. And it seems like even outdoors, it might just give you, it's big enough that it might just give you a nice fill and a pop of light in the eyes. Yeah, that's cool. Um, certainly at night, it would give you plenty of light to do a lot. You don't want to run it too long, but since it's got the dim function, you can kind of leave it on with the dim function and then turn on when you need to. I haven't figured out how to get it on a stand yet. No, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> but, you know, bring a stack of Apple boxes. Bring nice. it if someone doesn't mind holding it over their head for a while. You could, if it moves, maybe that's just part of the shot. You could uh, you could attach it to a helmet. I've got a an article coming out where someone attached a, a portable strobe unit to their helmet with an umbrella that goes on the back. <laughs> so you can get kind of creative. Yeah. Oh, oh I have an idea. You can't charge that much when you're walking around with a helmet <laughs> with a strobe attached, no matter how good your photos are. This is true. The helmet factor reduces your fee by about half, <laughs> no matter what. I have an idea for you. If you got some wide, uh, if you made some sort of a stand out of PVC, and you, if you got it a large enough diameter, you could probably fit the handle down inside of it. Huh. I've got another a tricky lighting situation for you. Not, maybe not so tricky, but I, I did just recently get an email from a gentleman who's photographing an elderly woman uh, who's very concerned about the wrinkles in her face. 
she doesn't okay. want so uh, what what would be some advice for him in terms of light positioning or just in general facelift <laughs> <laughs> okay failing a facelift um and obviously getting it as good as you can in camera although chances are with a client like this you might choose to use photoshop after to soften that what i tend to do is i would want a large soft source behind me that encompasses me. Okay. So let's assume I'm in a room that's 30 feet long. I'm going to put her, let's say, maybe seven feet from one wall. I'm roughly in the middle of the room. I've got one or two heads next to me hitting the back wall. The reason it might be two is because if one head doesn't hit enough of the back wall, two heads will then hit enough of the back wall. I'm going to begin with the light lighting behind me. So if I were where she is sitting looking at the camera, what I would see is the light surrounding the photographer with more light above the camera than below. Let's say two-thirds of the light above the camera, one-third of the light below. So it's a surrounding light, but it still is more from the top because that's just going to look more flattering. And it would surround the photographer but not take up the whole room, so it would be enough to kind of fill in the wrinkles. Then as the photographer, I would try tweaking the light a little bit to my left, a little to my right, see if maybe two-thirds of the light on my left and one-third on my right still was filling but gave the light some direction. Maybe a little bit more to my right or I'd add a little bit so that there would be some side light too that would continue from this large main source. Okay. Um, and assuming you were shooting during the day, you might even be standing in a doorway about, to about a third of the height up. Assuming the doorway was evenly lit from her point of view so she saw all roughly the same glowing stuff. Okay. And that's how a lot of the kind of soap opera headshots are done. And that gives you an idea. But a large light source that is not too large surrounding the camera, I'm not talking about a ring light, which is a hard light that looks weird. I know a lot of people love them. I hate them. <laughs> you guys are welcome to love them. I just don't. I think that they're gimmicky. Yeah. Um, and expensive. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're expensive and gimmicky, and they're in effect. I don't like lights that are in effect. I like lights that are appropriate. And that effect is rarely appropriate in my mind and to my sensibility. might be to yours, and I've seen people make them work on occasion, just on occasion, but people who really understand them and who is part of their vision, they work. But a nice broad light that's broad enough to fill in the wrinkles and directional enough so that it's not completely surrounding here, which will kind of recreate the wrinkles. Okay. Because then it just is light from all over. That's probably the best light for that situation. And you got to experiment, and you need the white behind you, and should there not be a white wall, you know, go to Kmart and buy some sheets. But there needs to be more above you than below, and you will understand the light by setting up the camera on a tripod and sitting where her head is going to be and looking. Because until you do that, you will probably not be lighting correctly because you'll probably have too much light below the camera the light will need to be hitting more above you than you would think. Okay. So you want to provide some directionality and still have soft softness, but not so yeah. much 
if there's too much light in the room, then it will just look like a very diffused light. You'll still see the wrinkles. Is that what you said? Yeah, in this 30-foot room, if the diameter of this kind of essentially round light source is 10 feet in total, mm -hmm. maybe 15, that's the kind of range I would have it in. Okay. Probably closer to 10. Now, could you do the bounce technique uh, rather than have some very large modifier in that case? Oh, I would ne I'd never use a large modifier. I mean, I'd need a softbox if I were going to use one of those evil things. Right. It was, um, you know, 10 or 12 <laughs> feet square. Okay. Or, 10 or, yeah, or, eight foot, or 8 feet square even. I wouldn't try and do that. I would bounce the light into a sheet. Okay. And it'll also fall off a little bit, and it'll be a little more softer and natural, which is something that I like. And, you know, $1,000 softbox, 20 bucks in cheap sheets, Buy them online at, you know, half.com or something, or I forget the name of the outlet place, but... Overstock. Overstock, yeah. There you, you go. Buy them online at Overstock for next to nothing and just get white sheets and bounce into that if you don't want to spend money. Maybe you've got white seamless around. Even the old stuff that's been stepped on, you could just kind of pull out because it's not going to matter. I'll be sure not to throw my roll out. Yeah, I can hang on to that. Now, I don't mean to, to beat on this, but just to make it very clear for the listeners, since we don't have a lot of drawings or anything of this right now, we're talking about the lights being behind the photographer, pointing back against the wall that's behind him, and then coming back and onto yeah, the subject. reflecting against the sheet and coming back. A sheet, a white wall, okay, okay. a white surface. So effectively, the person is lit by a glowing white surface, behind the photographer that is roughly, from their point of view, if the photographer put out his arm side to side, that's about the diameter of the light. Great. So roughly, that's a starting place. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to look at it. And you make it a little smaller, a little larger, you move it to the left, you move it to the right, you do some tests and you see. Very it's good. always a starting place. I have a question that maybe you can help us out with. A lot of times you hear people saying about... Um, feathering the light what exactly it are people talking about when they when they say that and and how do you do it it's an old process that has to do with chickens after the chicken was plucked <laughs> what they would do is take a series of feathers and put it between the light source and the person being being photographed that feathered light could, could you use a boa instead probably <laughs> um <laughs> But the, the freshly killed chickens, it's just, it's a little more interesting. <laughs> I'm the, sure the it is. <laughs> was, was, was overused. Uh, feathered light means to use the part of the light where it's falling off. So you don't point a light source directly at a person. You point it maybe at a wall because a light source will naturally fall off. A flat reflected wall light source will not. But let's say we're using some kind of a light modifier. You point a light modifier straight at something at its, its brightest point. You point it at the wall next to it, um, and let's assume that wall is black, so it's not reflecting anything, and they're lit very little or not at all. So as you slowly turn it towards them, there's a point where the light begins to hit them. That is feathering the light. At least that's what I think you're talking about. And with using a light modifier, that can be a very nice place to light from. 
since I don't use a lot of light modifiers, I don't feather a lot of light. I don't. I just don't use that those kinds of accessories very much. Makes sense. When you're trying to control the size of your light source, which is usually something you're bouncing into, often something I'm bouncing into. There's a lot of times I'm shooting through. Okay. Well, do you ever use grids then to kind of control the size of the beam, so to speak? Nah, I have to carry them with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if I want the beam smaller and I want a smaller area, I'll just move the light source closer to whatever it is. That's On top great. of it, a grid is going to cut so much light and make it, it restricts so much of the light that unless you're looking, if you're going across a room and you need to hit a small area, the grid might make sense. It also might be very effective if it's not making your source too small at dealing with having too much light coming out. Okay. But for the most part, in bouncing light, it's not something I've ever thought to do. But maybe I will now. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're getting ready to do a shoot, and I know you have some really great black and white work as well as color, do you think about that beforehand, how you're going to process the image and how you're going to light it to do that sort of processing, or do you kind of experiment with the process, image afterwards? When you say process and beforehand, if I'm shooting, I always know if I intend my image to be black and white or color because I will make different lighting choices, different background choices, all sorts of different choices because either color is an absolutely essential part of it or it doesn't matter at all. And both of those make me do different things. There are shots I do in black and white that would not work in color and vice versa. And sometimes people see, the, see it in color because the capture is truly color and they want it in color and I won't give it to them because it's not meant to be color and I don't think it looks good. Right. <laughs> um, in terms of... If I'm in studio or I'm using my laptop, which is overwhelming most of the time, I will play with curves and levels and apply that processing in at least a general way if I'm looking at it so I can see what I'm doing and what I'm getting. It's now as natural to me to apply those settings while I'm shooting as it is to pick an f-stop and set up lighting. <laughs> it's just part of the process of creating the photo. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for. Okay. Well, Mark, we've had you on the phone for an hour. <laughs> We're having a great time, but I don't want to keep it too terribly long. We really appreciate the time you spent with us tonight, Mark. My pleasure. I love doing this. It's a lot of fun. We'll, we'll get in touch with you again. We'll do this again sometime very, very soon. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. I'll have some more problem uh, problem photo shoots, and then I'll I'll just make sure I keep notes on everything. <laughs> right. I'll have some problem photo shoots too. I have no doubt. <laughs> That's great. Well, that's all we have for this episode of Light Source, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes at studiolighting.net for the things that we talked about on today's show. And there you can also find links about our photography and keep up with the stuff that we've been shooting. And don't forget you can send us feedback or questions about the show to studiolighting at gmail.com. And we'll try to answer those questions on the show or in the lighting questions section on studiolighting.net. You can also get feedback on your photography in our Flickr group, which is at www.flickr.com slash groups slash light source. Till next time. Take care.
Well, we should get into the interview. Uh, I think you're right. <laughs> we always say something stupid. Like, let's hit it. <laughs> That's the outtake right there. We don't do outtakes, man. <laughs> oh, Ed, I forgot to hit record. Are you serious? No. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. Okay.